Welcome to Broadway Radio's Tell Me More. I'm your host, Matt Tamanini. On Tell Me More, we strive to talk about projects and topics that don't often get covered on theater podcasts. In our first three episodes, we spoke to Broadway performers about side projects and charities that they were intimately involved with. However, today's show will be slightly different. In the very first episode, I said that I wanted to explore the topic of diversity and representation on stage, and after I spoke with Stephanie J. Block in our last episode, I said that the next episode, this one, would be on that topic. However, it took a little longer to get to this episode than normal. Shortly after the last Tell Me More was released, Broadway was consumed by a casting controversy about one of the title roles in the musical Natasha Pierre in The Great Comet of 1812. I don't want to get into all of those details, James Marino and I discussed them ad nauseum on Today on Broadway, but essentially the issue centered on the announcement that Hamilton alum Okarite and Nadawan would be replaced in the role of Pierre just a few weeks into an already planned short run. What exacerbated the problem for some was that he would be replaced by Tony and Emmy winner Mandy Patinkin. Oak is black and Mandy is white. So, with this controversy swirling for weeks upon weeks, I wanted to wait to get into this issue about diversity in theater because I didn't want the episode to either seem to be attempting to capitalize on this hot-button topic or to have the entire discussion consumed by the Great Comet commotion. Now, don't worry, we will be talking about the Great Comet, but more on that in a second. First in the episode, I talked to Christine Toy Johnson, an Asian American actress and Actors' Equity Council member and the chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Committee for AEA. Then I will speak to Andrew Shade, the founder and editorial director of the theater website BroadwayBlack.com. Drew's website was, in my opinion, unfairly caught up in the great comic controversy. I speak with both individuals about the representation issues on Broadway and in the theater in general, what can be done to address them, and the difficulty of balancing color-blind casting and color-conscious casting. First up was Christine Toy Johnson. One reason that I was excited to talk to her was because earlier this summer, Actors' Equity Association, the labor union for stage actors and stage managers, released a three-year study of the employment contracts of its members and analyzed them to see how the contracts broke down across racial and gender lines. Perhaps needless to say, the work was heavily slanted towards white men, and when women and or artists of color did get work, it was often at a lower rate. For example, according to Equity, off-Broadway, women of color in principal roles in musicals reported earning 16% less than the average for those types of contracts. On Broadway, women made up only 35% of principal in a play contracts and 42% in principal in a musical contracts, and all women on Broadway in principal roles earned less than their male counterparts. Taking their findings offstage over the three years studied, there were only six Broadway or production tour contracts given to African American stage managers. While the numbers were incredibly disappointing for most theater goers, I don't think they were a surprise. So I asked Christine what the impetus was for Equity to commission the study to quantify the racial and gender disparities that audiences saw on stage every day. You know, we have been, the association has been working towards diversity and inclusion for years and years. I've been the, I started the co-chair of when we used, when the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Committee was uh, in regions, and I was the co-chair of the Eastern Region um, EEO for many, many years, and then became the national chair um, about three years ago. And so throughout all of this time, we have been trying to find different solutions to the same problem, though though evolving, really the same obstacles, different um, ways to, to move, move the picture forward. And we were negotiating contract language between our um, employers and our members, and things were still not really, um, they were changing, things have been changing, but not in as substantive a way that everyone wanted to. And so... This has been ongoing. That's to say, this has been ongoing. And then the council um, made it a real priority to have some movement happen um, in the industry. And so it became um, a priority for us to ask staff to find new ways to approach the problem. And and one of the ways that was suggested and and turned out to be very um, very telling uh, was was gathering these um, these numbers. And after the three-year study, it went from 2013 to 2015. Take a while to kind of go through this, and you released this earlier this year. And I don't know that anyone was 
necessarily surprised by the results because a lot of what these things were analyzing were things that we can see on stage with our own eyes. But when you put right. it on a table and look at the percentages, whether it's in a Broadway or production tour or off Broadway, it was really staggering to see that, um, for example, uh, women in principal roles in a play, both for Broadway or production tours, make up just over a third. And that just seems startling uh, to me. So when you did get that information, what were some of the numbers that stood out to you, obviously on the side that needs improvement, but was there also anything that you said, okay, at least this is a point where we do see some improvement and something that we can say, how did we get a positive number here and how can we we recreate that in other areas as well? Well, that's really hard to say actually, because I don't think that there were any surprises in that in that way. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, you know, I guess I was surprised to see just the numbers, like I, like you say, uh, you can see from going to the theater what's uh, who's on stage. It's, it's very easy to see. And as an actor myself through all these years, you know, I, I can see uh, where I'm where I'm getting hired more than other places and my colleagues as well. So I, I, I have to say that I, I wasn't surprised in, in a good way at all by any of the numbers. I think what's been great about it, though, if there's a, there is a positive uh, aspect to this, is that it's easier to have a conversation with other people in the industry when we have empirical facts. And um, because I have to say, through all these years, as I said, I've been doing advocacy for a long time, I I talk to people all over the industry who share this desire to increased diversity and inclusion on our stages. And that hasn't been enough. So the, the, it's, it's one thing to have the shared philosophy, and it's another to have a strategy to go forward. And so that's what these numbers are helping us to do across the industry, because it's not just a problem. Parity is not a problem just with actors and stage managers. It's, it's throughout the industry. And, and anyone you talk to, um, I think, would agree with me. Um, sure. the, the leaders at SDC, and I'm, I'm part of the elected leadership of the Drama Guild as well, and we're seeing it there um, and so all over. So I think what, what's good about these numbers is that it's saying, okay, we've got, we've got some hard facts. What are we going to do about it? We need to find new solutions to these problems. Let's put our heads together as an industry, um, not one against another, but together and uh, figure it out. And so back to one of your previous questions, one of the things um, that equity's done that's been very big this year is we hired our very first diversity and in inclusion mm-hmm. um, director, Nicole Smart, who is skilled at strategizing how to increase diversity and inclusion. And so that's a very big step for us um, to have somebody who is an expert in that field who is, is working with us to, to find these uh, new windows into uh, shifting the conversation. Well, I guess that leads us right into the thing is, is how can you do that? Uh, obviously, you said you want to bring people from all parts of the industry and the community together to solve these problems. But when it comes down to it, especially with the things that were looked at, at this in this survey, they were Broadway production tours and then off-Broadway. Those are pretty much all businesses. So I would imagine that there's at least some sort of of pushback from the production side that says, well, we have to do the things that make us money. And there's, for whatever reason, they think that the things they've been doing were the best way to do it. How do you get that give and take to where you can find a way that is beneficial for everybody to try to meet that parity and that equity that everybody says they want to have? Well, first of all, I challenge that idea that uh, it would be counter money making uh, to money making in the in the theater by not having. Yeah, I totally <laughs> agree with you. No, I know, I know. No, but I challenge that. All you have to say is Hamilton. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, fair I enough. challenge. I cha- I don't think it's a viable. Um, I don't think it's a viable point anymore. Um, and so you know, I I have been thinking all along that. Part of what we need to do now, so of course, you know, equity cannot say who to hire or not to hire. That's that's not what, what the union does. We represent fifty thousand people of all stripes. That's that's what we're we're charged to do. However, what we can do and what we've been trying to do more and more of is increase access into the room, so that so that 
all people can get a chance at being seen and to be considered. And then beyond that, deeper than that, for me, it's about shifting perceptions of who we are and what we can do so that so that we chip away at the preconceived notion that a, a person of color or a woman in a role that you might not think of at first is cast with a person of color or a woman would be counterproductive to trying to make money with the show. Shift the perceptions and, and drill down deeper into, into the, the moral imperative, really, of reflecting the world as it is and how that actually is good for everybody. <laughs> to create a larger American landscape of, of storytelling, not taking away a piece of anyone's pie, but making a bigger pie. And that's what I just um, I firmly believe in, is something that would help all of us in, in all, all ways. No, I couldn't, you're not going to get any argument here on, yeah, on that. No. <laughs> well, and right. what, what's interesting about what you said is, is that you're trying to give people access to rooms they might not get in, to me, Correct. as I sit back and think about this, obviously that's very important to get actors of all, as you said, shapes, sizes, stripes, you know, colors, genders, mm-hmm. the opportunities. Mm-hmm. But really, they're only a very small part of this casting puzzle. And it was interesting to me that one of the first things you said was that you are trying to do it from a totality of the industry perspective. So when mm-hmm. you work with other unions, um, and obviously you see you work with the Dramatists Guild as well. Is there a way that equity or even those other groups can help increase the voices that are heard, not only in the things that are being written or the from the production standpoint, getting more producers of color or, fe- or female producers? Because I would have to imagine that that would also lend itself to creating a better equitable look of, as to what we see on stage. Absolutely. I think that that's the key part of this this desire to convene the industry around the uh, around the subject so that we're we're all in it together as far as the material that's being done um i i hear a lot from people that there there aren't uh, roles being written for women or people of color and that is absolutely i can't even i can't even say it loud enough it's not true what's what is true is that women playwrights and and writers of color are not being produced as much so that's why yeah. you're not seeing those roles and so it that's what i mean by the by the industry wide situation and i don't think it's productive to try to do it by, uh, by ourselves anymore i just don't i think that each each of the um, groups, uh, that's not the right word. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? The guilds and the associations and all sure. of the all of the, the theater makers that are working on Broadway and off-Broadway that really bottom line, yes, they want to make money, but bottom line, I, I like to believe, and, and you know, call me a cockeyed optimist, but um, <laughs> I like to believe that bottom line is we all want to make the best theater we can and that reaches the most number of people and that tells the, the most number of stories and touches people. And I mean, that's, that's the, 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 at the core of why we do this. And so I'd like to think that the more we, like I said, increase, expand the boundaries of what that storytelling can look like and sound like the, the better for everybody. Yeah. And so taking this is what we would like to do. What are the things now that Equity has a diversity director? What are the things that Equity is either doing on its own or in conjunction with other unions and guilds that are working towards trying to make these goals and these dreams and these ideals a reality? Well, we just have begun working with Nicole. So we're we're at the beginning of um, of outreach to convene the industry. Sure. We we did have um, through our recent le- uh, negotiations with with the Lort contract, the League of Resident Theaters, <clears throat> get a commitment from the leadership at Lort to uh, work with us on this and and convene and convene together and and uh, that's bringing artistic directors together and and producers um, to try to try to take a stab at at um, chipping away at at all of the issues that that are involved. I mean, it's a complex. It's, I, I also acknowledge it's complex and multi-layered and uh, not uh, an easy fix. So that's one thing. Um, with, within our own membership, we are reaching out to our own members to find out their individual stories so that we get a greater and broader understanding of, of personal experiences that help us understand how we might be able to continue conversations with people. And then I... 
I know that a lot of us know each other from from speaking out or just from being in the industry, and we're having we've been having smaller conversations too with executive directors and and leaders in various guilds and associations who, like I said, are are on the same page, and also really wrestling with with um, how to find uh, effective ideas to to move forward. With their with their own memberships and and how to how to build the bridges in a in a way that really will make a difference together. Have you? I'm I'm asking this question uh, presuming that I know the answer, but has there been any pushback at all from any side of this that you know where someone says this shouldn't be what a union's job is? It should be to represent everybody and leave the casting decisions to the producers or the casting directors. Has there been any pushback on anything like that at all? Not that I've heard of. I hope that's the answer that you thought I was going that, to Yes, say. it is. It, it, that is. <laughs> um, uh, I think, um, there, although all the things you mentioned are not mutually exclusive, I think the union can absolutely fight for all of its members. And also in that, in that whole fight for equal rights for everyone, it, it in, directly impacts um, the the people who are have been historically underrepresented for for all these years, so they're not mutually exclusive. We are fighting for all our members, which means all our members, and um, and sometimes you have to be a little louder about people who have been less represented on uh, in in the numbers in in the jobs um, than others. And like I said, I I hope I really hope that people can see that it's for the greater good. And um, that's something, the big picture is something that we're always working towards improving upon. And to that end, um, this might not be a question that you want to answer as an equity uh, representative. Mm-hmm. It might be something that you are maybe a little more suited to answer as uh, an actress of color. But mm-hmm. um, does equity have a position on things like on like colorblind casting versus color conscious casting, is there a perspective on those things that either is official from Actors' Equity or just from your experience how those two different things work together or in opposition? Because there's that seems to be with some of the recent casting that's going on both in New York and around the country. Those are conversations that are being had and how one could be more beneficial and maybe one might be less beneficial or things like that. I You know, I think the terms are evolving. And so um, it's hard to say, do, does someone, is one more correct than the other on any given day, I, I think. Because, you know, when, when the concept of non-traditional casting started in the late 1980s, um, it was, it, it, it described what was being sought. And now it feels it feels dated to say, and and also not really what we're going after, to say that casting a person of, say, I'm just going to say this for example, say, casting a person of color in a role that has historically been cast with a Caucasian person is not traditional, therefore not normal. And so that, I think in the, in the late 1980s, it made sense because it was a new phrase that was being coined. And now as, as, as our understanding of, of the philosophy behind the casting and, and the impact has shifted and evolved, the words have changed. And so I think color conscious, it does make sense to me personally, but it's really been something that's, um, that's, given me a new understanding of uh, and and to to what we're we're trying to say i try to say diverse and inclusive casting more than non-traditional anymore and um color blind i understand the the meaning behind it and the the well-meaning meaning behind it but i think it is really impossible to be blind to a person's sure. um race or cultural background and and um, perhaps not useful <laughs> to to be blind to it. So that's that's a long way to say. I think that it keeps it, it is ever evolving and will continue to evolve. Um, and so we have to go. We have to sort of bend personally and as an association. We're bending with with our understanding of of what the words mean and how what their impact is. Sure, and I, I think that's a really good way to look at it because 
you might cast it colorblind, you know, quote unquote, but when somebody sees it, the, you know, how the person looks brings an entire history, both for them personally, to the table as a performer, and then to the audience member, that changes what they're seeing. So it can't be completely 360 degrees blind. There's going to be inherent messages built into casting something with, uh, you know, a, I don't want to use the word non-traditional since you said you don't use it, but um, with somebody of color that's in a role that's not normally like that. So it, it does seem to be a more nuanced approach seems more appropriate, like you said. Right. Even if the message is we are create, we are presenting a world of storytelling that doesn't um, define people by race or cultural background, that message um, can come through that kind of casting. Um, so I, I don't I, I don't want to say that I believe that uh, there that there has to be any prescribed message um, by by doing what used to be called color line casting, um, but that that the message could very well be we are we are living in a, a world in our show that doesn't define people by by those those qualities. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll wrap it up here. There's with with one kind of final question. Recently, mm-hmm. um, the new artistic director at Shakespeare's Globe over at, in Stratford upon Avon said that in this upcoming season, she is going to strive to not only cast all of the roles, no matter how they are originally intended. 50% male, 50% female, and also to add in different race and ethnicities where they're not normally showing up in Shakespeare plays. Is there a way, like what, if we're looking down into the future, what needs to be done to get the New York theater community closer to something that obviously doing it at one theater like the Globe is much different than doing it in an entire industry with dozens and hundreds of producers. What are the steps that have to happen to get something that looks on the stage more like what we see in everyday life. You know, I want to say first that I'm not a producer, so I don't have that knowledge of what what it takes to put on a show. I mean, I have some knowledge, but I don't have the the hard experience. But I just feel like, you know what the steps need to be done? We just need to do it. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) We need to do it. Seems fair. (laughs) What can equity do to... Because I, I imagine the reason it hasn't been done is either, like we said earlier, afraid that it might not work commercially or just a reticence to be the first one to do it. What can equity do to kind of say, you know what, these are who our members are. They're wonderful. They're talented, no matter who they are, what they look like, what gender or sexual orientation they are. What can I guess what can the union do to make that more appealing to the producers that do make those decisions? I feel like it has, it goes back to access. It goes back to universal access. So, you know, everyone will say, we just want the right, we just want the best person for the part. But that assumes universal access. That assumes that everybody has been seen and considered for that part. If you're not even allowed in the room, whether it's physically allowed in the room or philosophically allowed in the room, you can't possibly get a shot at being the best person for the part. So what I do think that we can do as a union is to really keep working on the getting access into the room, both, like I say, physically and philosophically. And that includes having these really frank and difficult conversations with our collaborators so that we can brainstorm it together on how we can actually just do it. Up next, I spoke to Drew Shade from BroadwayBlack.com. His website's stated mission is to highlight the achievements and successes of African-American theater artists on and off the Broadway stage. While highlighting those achievements, Broadway Black got swept up into the great comic controversy because of an article that, in my opinion, was widely misinterpreted, either consciously or unconsciously. Nevertheless, a social media firestorm erupted around the site. Tony winner Cynthia Erivo, performer, writer, and activist Raphael Casal, whom Drew mentions in our conversation. These three, amongst others, were blamed for closing the Great Comet on Broadway. Drew and his site were inundated with complaints, accusations, and even threats. So, at the start of our conversation, I asked him the simple question, what led to him creating BroadwayBlack.com?
Um, well, I studied musical theater in college. I grew up doing theater as well. And so it's always been a passion and a love of mine. When I went to Ball State University in, Mun- in Muncie, Indiana, it's a small town. I'm from Indiana. And I was the only black male musical theater major in my, in my class, um, in my year. And I don't really remember any other standout black males in the musical theater department, maybe in the acting department, but in the musical theater department, I do not remember any other black men. And it was difficult for me to find material. It was difficult for me to find monologues and things that I really could sink my teeth into um, and things that reflected me and, and voices that sounded like mine. And I just thought that was so crazy. So when I found, you know, little songs and tidbits here and there, I clung to them. I, I held on to them. I talked to the, the other black musical theater majors. Have you heard of this show? Have you seen this? Have you listened to this? And, you know, a lot of times they hadn't. So I just thought, like, why not put it all in one place and start highlighting what, what we as, you know, black people do in the, in the theater realm? Because it's not a, it's there. It's, it's real work. It's powerful uh, transcending work that's happening on the stage, and I think more so on the stage than in movie, movies and television, but, um, you know, the, the film and television have more exposure, and so my thought process was trying to gain the theater more exposure, and specifically gain uh, black people more exposure in the theater, because we were missing, and there were elements that were missing from our story, um, and so that's how it sort of became about. I had some design background and building websites and things from my childhood, and I just sort of put those loves together. And, and I was able to market, them, market it in a way that was receptive to my friends and my community um, because I knew a lot of um, theater, um, well, not theater bloggers, but I knew a lot of um, gossip bloggers. So it's, I, shouldn't say, I shouldn't call them gossip bloggers. That's not what they are. Personalities, I should say. I knew a lot of, pers- I knew a lot of online personalities, people that had their own websites and that you know, talked about pop culture and things of that nature, but I wasn't a pop culture person. And so I was like, how can I, you know, sort of take the same format, but do something with it that, um, that reflects who I am. And so that's sort of all those ideas coming together at once and around the same time um, sort of helped me to build and create what is now Broadway Black. So you've been up and running now. I mean, is it, has it been three years? It seems like it's been at least three years, right? Yeah, uh, well, it's been it's been five years as a, as a well hobby for the first two years, and then as an official business, it's been three years. Okay, that's so I think that's really where, where, yeah. I think when <laughs> you made the transition, that's when I first really uh, kind of came be, uh, aware of you. And there's been a lot that's that's gone on, both probably highs and lows uh, in the Broadway community in this area since you started. This issue of representation on stage has really seemed to being highlighted on Broadway because of shows like Hamilton or the color purple that was on Broadway last year. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of fair minded theater lovers can say, yes, um, there are moments to champion on Broadway and in theater in general, but they're far too few and far between uh, than, than there should be. What's the perspective from where you sit as to, how Broadway and specifically or theater in general is doing in terms of this representation, both on and off stage mm-hmm. and what else? Uh, well, let's just start with how they're doing now, I guess. Um, Broadway specifically is, is, is it's a weird catch 22 just because of the fact that we had such a great year a couple of seasons ago, two seasons was that last, Oh my goodness. It's two seasons ago now. Yeah. Um, since we're in the 2017, 2018 season. Um, so, since the whole Hamilton season, you know, we had that great year. We had a great year. Um, since then, it, it, it sort of trickled off just, just because of, of, you know, how Broadway works. You know, there's a tide of, of you know, black rising and, and, and um, black talent being showcased. And that sort of time and mood is sort of passed in a way. I mean, um, I, you know, it's difficult to... to, to it's difficult to fault the community as a whole because we have to learn how to buy into to more black stories, if that makes sense, and more voices. Um, and I understand that that takes time. And so we're not what we want to be. We're getting better. There, there are more opportunities that are coming. But we don't get as Black people don't get a chance to fail as often as their counterparts. You mentioned that the, the stories aren't often as told. And, and to me, one of the problem isn't necessarily that 
you know, there just aren't as many roles um, for people of color, whatever they are. That's obviously a byproduct of it. But to me, the bigger problem is that the decision makers and the gatekeepers are all almost right. uniformly white, whether that's producers who are deciding what shows get you know, produced or playwrights and, <laughs> and whatever are, even though there are tremendous talents um, across the spectrum, the ones that are getting focused on are, are white. And then you go to casting directors. So it, to me, the problem of not seeing them on, you know, people of color on stage is the byproduct of an entire systemic issue that is probably a lot harder to correct than just who ends up on stage. Right. So it starts with us. You're, you're right in the pocket, Matt. That's exactly what the issue is. Um, so that's why I say it, it's a weird catch-22 right now because we had that great season which reflected black people and, and people of color on stage. Yes, however, the powers that be behind those particular shows were, you know, were the, the white majority. And so, and the Broadway community seems to be a white majority, an old boys club, if you will, for the hands that run it. And um, I've come to learn that as a, as a young um, you know, 20 something young man, uh, I've come to learn sort of how this business works in a, in a weird way. Um, I sort of inserted myself into the, to the narrative and, and to sort of discover and educate people about, uh, the lack of playwrights, the lack of black producers, the lack of uh, black stage managers, the lack of black costume designers, the lack of black uh, wig designers, the lack of black, uh, of, of black people in general in the, in the aspects of power. And so, it starts there, but be, that's, that's because Broadway has been a, a um, white majority for so long that people of color don't even know that these jobs exist, that they can actually make a living, you know, being a, a, a part of, you know, being a stagehand. They, they can actually make a living doing lights for Broadway or building set pieces or what have you. So um, it starts with the education, and that's why I sort of, you know, place my focus in to sort of make change for the long haul. So I can't complain that we don't have any black shows on, on Broadway or, or, you know, there's, there's not enough happening um, because I'm still building the, the funnel and the tunnel to, to Broadway. And it starts with the education, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. I think that's the, it's, it's one of those, because like you said, it's been, so controlled by a group of rich white guys for so long, there is a steep, you know, ascent to try to get some sort of equality yeah. on a regular basis that is not just seen as a novelty or something as a flash in the pan. It's something that is consistent, whether that's Rachel or having more female playwrights on Broadway or female led shows. I think you're right. It is a long climb that hopefully many people are starting to get involved in now. Yeah, and I think that they are. I think that they're aware and they're having the conversations. And that's what Broadway Black is about. Broadway Black is a stimulator for conversation. Um, because if we don't have the conversation, then nobody will. Everybody will gloss over it. And it'll be, you know, they'll put the Broadway lights on you and, and they'll shine everything away. Um, and we want to make sure that we focus the lights and we focus on the issues and we talk about them and, and actually have real conversations for progress and, and not a, a fighting or a, a bickering match. Um, we don't want to place blame we want to um find solutions one of those conversations that broadway blank has been a part of here recently uh centers around the recently closed broadway musical natasha Pierre and the great comet of 1812 when mm-hmm. uh when actor okarite nadawan was going to be replaced by tony winter mandy patinkin and then he wasn't and I don't know if this actually came from you specifically, but I, I know it, it was attributed to Broadway Black that Great Comet was a very diverse show. It won awards from Actors' Equity for its diversity. But one of the things that your site said, and it very well might have been you, uh, so please let me know if it was, that it's interesting that when the chips were down financially, and it does seem, you know, from my perspective, that a lot of the decisions made around Great Comet were financial, but that doesn't negate the fact that like you said, that when the the stuff hits the fan from a from a money standpoint, diversity and representation was the first thing to go. Am I paraphrasing that correctly from your perspective? Yeah, you're fine with that. Yeah, that was actually Jamara Wakefield, one of the uh, the staff writers on my team that works with us. Great. And I, I you know I, I edited the article, so I, I was happy with the work that she did, and I stood by her, and I still stand by her today, and I've been standing by her throughout the the turmoil. So. I agree with that. The Great Comet is, is a, 
a beautiful show, and I'm glad that they have so much representation. Um, however, just because a show and uh, you know people cast a a mixture and a a diverse group of people does not mean that they are without fault in other areas, or that does not mean that they're not capable of sure. you know of of mistakes. And that's what I think happened here. I think that there wasn't the right amount of conversation with the people that needed to be spoken to. And so when this particular information came to us, because we released information before it actually was, you know, put any place else, we, we broke the news. Um, the information was brought to me um, the day before. And I just thought it was odd um, that, the, that the promo for, uh, for Oak um, had went out and, and, you know, people were ready and I was ready to see the show and willing and, I thought it odd that Mandy would be replacing him so soon. And it just didn't sit right with me. And so I did a little bit more investigative work and, and found out it was due to ticket sales, which we understand. We understand that the Broadway is, is a business. It's about, it's about the money. However, it boiled down to a respect issue. And that's what I think people are missing, that, that that's going over their heads. All they're hearing is black and white. It did not matter if Oak was replaced with a black actor or a white actor. That's not the issue here. And I think that's what people are thinking that, that we're saying, that when we say that it's about respect and it's about professionalism, that we're saying that he can't be replaced by a white actor. Nobody ever said that. Nobody, that, nobody tweeted that. Nobody said anything about the issue of him being a white actor. However, Raphael... Um, I believe he tweeted and said, and I think that's where it started to get misconstrued when he said that, um, how would you feel if, you know, the producers come to you and, and uh, want to replace you, a black actor, with a white actor? And I think that's where people started to get the, the, the message misconstrued, that it's more about professionalism, because how many times is me as a black man, and not just working in the theater, but working in education, working in the restaurant industry, working in hospitality, have I felt belittled or mistreated or... Um, walked over or glossed over or not, um, not involved in the conversation that involves me on my job as a black man. And we have to really think about, it's not about calling racism, it's about addressing implicit biases. So an implicit bias is, is something that you don't even realize that you are doing. And people of color have been glossed over for so long that I'm not, it's not beyond my realm of thinking that, that, and this is me personally speaking for Drew Shade, not Broadway Black, that it, but it's not above, beyond my realm of thinking that they wanted to replace Oak and they wanted to get money coming in. I get that. However, not having the right conversation with him, not talking to him about it, not respecting him enough, because there's no way in my mind that you would bring in a guest artist and not speak to them frankly and openly about ticket sales, about you know, what the options are, about what's coming down the pipeline, just to come and say we're replacing you with Mandy. It's to me, and the way that that was done was disrespectful. And, this is not, and it's not out, outside of the scope for me to think that too, just the way that the producers treated the, the, the situation coming into Broadway with Ars Nova. Mm-hmm. So it's not outside of my scope of thinking that there's some mistreatment here. And just because they have a cast of people that are diverse does not mean I can let the other issue go unaddressed. Like, I cannot, if I feel as though there is something that is happening here that is not right, it is my responsibility as a platform that, that um, lifts people of color up, that highlights them in a way that makes them feel included in this industry, there are people that have told me that they finally feel apart because we're here. So it is my responsibility to address those things. And, it, and, and I think the way that we did it was very respectful. I think the way that Jamar wrote, because had it been me, had I written it, it would have been, had a, a little bit more of a, a bite to it. And I think that she was very respectful, and that's why I wanted her to write it. Um, the, one of the things that she said that I really loved was that it raises questions of how uh, black talent and African-American talent is, is treated and, and respected in regards to, and I'm paraphrasing as well, but in regards to this community, how are they valued? How, are black, how is black talent valued? If you valued me, you would respect me enough to have the conversation with me about how this is going to go down and how we can make it work for all of us. You would respect me enough and be professional, professional enough to tell the truth when it all comes out. Because 
as you can see, our article has not changed since it, since it came out. We didn't do any edits. We didn't add anything. Our article specifically said at the beginning that it was for financial reasons. That's what the, the angle we came from. They came back and said that it was, and it was like Mandy wanted to be in the show, and and you know we you know Oak graciously stepped aside and 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 you know allowed him to do so, and the money situation didn't come out until the end until it kept until it was still an issue um, because it just didn't sound right, and so when you do you know real shit when you do shady things, shady business, then it comes to light and people are, are start to question and start to see like hold on this don't sound right it doesn't look right it doesn't feel right and so when those things don't add up then people start digging and that's what happens so you can't blame the outcry of people that are like hey i don't like this like this is not cool and and so what is what is you know the person that's involved and the the actor that's involved to do with that if they still want to work they shut their mouths they don't say anything because they want to work and that's that's the, the thing that gets me here is the is the um the political the political nature of this business. I mean, and, and that's in every business. I, I get that. But the political nature of this business is so fickle in a way that it's almost, it's made people scared to stand up for themselves. Right. And I'm not talking about, oh, but I'm saying it's made people in general that are, that people in general that are not even involved with the situation are scared to speak up about what they think and they feel about it to, because they want to continue to work. They don't want to be labeled as difficult. They don't want to be labeled as, you know, uh, a person that, that causes controversy. When it's like, if we don't have these discussions, then we're never going to get anywhere. The process is never going to change. And that is the issue. Stop being scared of the conversation. And let's really talk about it. Stop being scared to be, to, to be called on your bullshit. Stop being scared to, to, to be a, a, a quote-unquote bad white person. Because that's what, that's what everybody's scared of. They don't want to be the bad white person. They don't want to be the, the, the white person that has racist actions. And you can be... A, a, a white person that is not racist and not have racist feelings, but do racist things. And it's not necessarily okay, but it's, it's, it can be okay if you address them and, and start working towards uh, using your voice and, and being an ally and standing up for the, the injustices and things of people of your brothers and sisters around you. That's what it's about. And it's not just in the everyday world. It's in the theater community as well. It's very prevalent. It's not just uh, you know, walking down the street. It's not just everyday life. This business has an issue with race and color and, and, and black bodies. I've also experienced microaggressions in the theater um, that you would not believe. I mean, I've heard stories from, you know, even playwright Dominic Marisa, who wrote an article on American Theater Wing about her experience in the theater where a lady tried to police her and stop her from clapping and being and enjoying the show. I've heard an instance where a young man had a ticket and that his seat was his ticket, like he bought his ticket and a lady wanted to sit next to her friend. And so he asked her, you know, he wanted her to move. He said, well, I paid for this particular seat and that's the seat that he wanted that he chose. And she made him feel as though that he was in the wrong for wanting the seat that he paid for because she wanted to sit next to her friend that she hadn't seen in years. These types of microaggressions that, that, that people expect black bodies to move and shake and make them feel comfortable at the way that, in the way that they think that they should. And, and if we don't, then it's an issue. It's a problem that we're, we're the ones in the wrong. And that is what consistently happens in the theater. And I've seen it time and time and, you know, time and time again. And that's what we're looking to change. It's, a, it's about bringing the issue to people so that they can address themselves and we can all have the conversation. Does that make sense? I know I rambled on. <laughs> There was so much in there that I just want I I wish we could break down all all of that um, uh, because there's so much interesting things that I think uh, needs to be discussed. So maybe we can circle back to some of it. But I, I really was was interested by one of the things you said, and I think it's very emblematic of the situation the way you laid it out with great comment that. Howard Kagan has not necessarily endeared himself to the Broadway community at large, um, but especially in this situation, I, I think it is very um, it is kind of um, a microcosm of a lot of the Broadway community, especially the white Broadway community, where we pride ourselves on being progressive and we we, we celebrate diversity and representation. But there are things that just because of the privilege from where we sit, we just don't recognize some of the things that we do on a daily basis that are just habit and, and unthinking that are in and of themselves from a very 
you know, perhaps not a malicious point of view, but are racist. And I feel like, it, you know, again, without putting words in your mouth, that maybe the actions that Great Comet and their team took weren't intended to be racist, weren't driven by race, but because they didn't think about them as a whole, they didn't understand the impl- the racial and racist implications that they had. Exactly. Exactly. And that, and that is, nobody's faulting you for, for uh, I, I shouldn't say faulting you. I should say that I understand, but that doesn't mean that I, I can sit back and just let it happen. It doesn't mean that I cannot call it out. Like, Absolutely. I understand, and I don't believe that, that the people that are involved with Great Comet are, are racist people or have, or have ill intentions. Um, but I just, you just can't say that it's, it's difficult. I don't believe that they have racist, in, racist uh, intentions, and I don't believe that the people involved are racist. However, I do believe um, that there were some things that happened that were not okay. And right. we, you know, we have to just talk about them. We have to call them out. Right. Well, it, being a good person, uh, you know, in as a whole, does not excuse the bad decisions and, and unthoughtful exactly. decisions that you make that hurt people, whether you intended to hurt them or not. You know, that's where exactly. I, that's the way I look at it. Um, exactly. Okay. Like I said, there's so much in that thing that the, that that speech you made that I I want to talk about, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put some of that to the side because there's one more thing that I do want to bring up uh, with you. Okay. And that is that with cast with some of the casting decisions that we've seen um, recently announced, where people of color are playing roles that are generally performed by white people. There's been kind of this discussion between the difference between color blind casting and color conscious casting. We've seen uh, Joshua Henry; uh, he's going to leave the tour of Hamilton, and he's going to play Billy Bigelow in Carousel on Broadway. We've seen, mm-hmm. um, you know, like Denzel Washington is going to lead a revival of The Iceman Cometh, a role traditionally played by a white man. And there has been some interesting discussions. To me, I think there's a lot of people that are just concerned about some of the story of Carousel in general. And then when you cast a, to be quite fair, a a very, uh, I don't know the right word here, but Joshua Henry's got huge arms and I wish that my arms looked like his. But to to cast a black man in a role whose singular quality is he has one great song. And he abuses his wife. I think there's a lot of people that are concerned about that even more than they would already be about the role in general. So right. from your perspective, how, how do you deal with this? Billy Bigelow is one of the most iconic roles in musical theater history. So on one hand, there's a lot of great feelings that Joshua Henry is going to get to do the part on Broadway. But then you have to be concerned about the implications that are not a part of the play in general that his casting will convey to an audience. Mm-hmm. Right. That he's the big black angry man that exactly. hits on his wife. Exactly. Yeah, um, I get that. I, I and I think that this is another situation where I'm not sure who the producers are, what the creative team, um, how it's built, and and this is these are the things that need to be talked about and addressed. And they, maybe they have talked about it. Maybe this is something that they're okay with moving forward. Um, but I love the fact that they're doing it because it, it allows us to have a, another conversation. Um, it allows us to, to talk about these things. And I'm so glad that you brought it up, Matt, that you're, you're thinking of it. And it's not, um, you know, a, a black person that is bringing it to the forefront because we always look like we're crying racism. Um, that's the, the, the key, the key words I've been getting over the past month or so, along with the, the threats, and the, the cries of, of we closed great comment down. Um, but I, I'm so glad that you're saying that because these are the conversations that we need to have. Um, I, I'm, Thrilled for Joshua Henry. Joshua Henry is a, a great friend of mine, and I'm so glad that he's, he's you know, getting this opportunity to showcase um, what it is that he can really do. Um, and, and, and he consistently works, and he does an amazing job. He's, he's always consistent, so I'm very happy that he's getting this chance. I, I don't necessarily agree uh, with the casting. I would not have cast him simply for, for that particular reason. Um, but um, um, that's not my decisions to make. Um, once you know, probably Black built a casting agency, then maybe I can you know have that have that conversation with some <laughs> and be a part of that conversation, you know, with creative teams. But um, I'm, I, that's I, I, I'm not the end all and be all. I can have my personal opinion about it. Probably right. Black is here to uh, put put forth the news and what's happening, and allow people to have to have their own reaction, their own opinion. And I think that we sort of pick up on the voice of the people. What are the people saying about it? Um, and, and what do they want to see? Um, and so we sort of, you know, choose our battles wisely in, in that, in that uh, respect. 
Uh, we listen more to our audience, and I think that people are sort of happy about this. I don't think that it's too much of an issue, um, and, and, but it's still a conversation that we can have. It's still something that we can say, like, hey, um, this contributes to, you know, stereotypes, but then also have to look at the, the, the musical as, you know, in the era that it comes from. Um, you know, the era that, that Broadway was in when this musical, you know, first hit the stage, uh, that wasn't a great time for black people. Even though we're in the musical, that wasn't the, the best of times, um, you know, especially if you were a, a Broadway performer, if you were a theater actor. Um, and Billy Bigelow is not exactly the most sympathetic character either. He's He might be the protagonist right. in the show, but he's not... Uh, he's not revered in the show. He is looked at as a semi-villain uh, in a lot of ways. Exactly. And so I, it, it's, it's going to depend on how it's depicted. How harsh are we going to get this? Or how, how, you know, is it going to be, is it going to be, you know, downplayed like Color Purple and Mister? Is it going to, are you really going to give me something crazy like, you know, Wild Party and, uh, you know, Andrew Lippert's Wild Party or something at the end? Like, it just depends on how crazy it's going to be depicted. Um, and so I'm interested to see it. That's the joy of theater. That's the, the, that's the fun of it, uh, to be able to create and to have these conversations and to, uh, you know, get people thinking and, and getting them more involved culturally, because I think that's the, the great thing about theater, that even though it is a, there is a separation from reality, um, it also feeds into reality so well. Uh, and that's why I continue to come back season after season. I love it so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tell Me More. My name is Matt Tamanini. You can find me on Twitter at BWWMATT, and you can reach out to Broadway Radio on both Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. We will have all of the contact information for Christine and Drew in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. Tell Me More is produced by me. Special thanks to the man without whom none of Broadway Radio is possible, James Marino as well as Brandon Lawrence at Actors' Equity. On our next episode, I will talk to one of the world's preeminent Shakespeare reducers about a new project that is popping up this fall. Thanks for listening, and remember, art isn't easy any way you look at it. Always get that second scoop, and when you get the chance, ask people to tell you more. <laughs>